So I'm going to begin with a poem called Thinking Like a Butterfly. Monday I was told I was good. I felt relieved. Tuesday I was ignored. I felt invisible. Wednesday I was snapped at. I began to doubt myself. On Thursday I was rejected. Now I was afraid. On Saturday I was thanked for being me, my soul relaxed. On Sunday I was left alone till the part of me that can't be influenced grew tired of submitting and resisting. Monday I was told I was good. By Tuesday I got off the wheel. If it was that easy, if it only took a week... How many times are we praised that you're great, I like you, either in words or in gesture or in, you know, some other form of appreciation or, um, and then other times we're blamed. And sometimes from the inside, it kind of doesn't really look that different, does it? In fact, something that one person praises you for, someone else might blame you for the exact same thing. Have you ever had that happen? It's quite actually enlightening. It's like, wow, I did one thing, and I got all these different responses. And there's a wonderful story about another aspect of our lives, of gain and loss. And you may have heard this. I I really like it. There's many different forms of it. But there was a man, uh, farmer, simple life, and he had his family, and he had um, horse, did his plowing, and that was just what he had. And one day, his horse got out of the corral and uh, got free and ran away. And his neighbors went, oh my goodness, this is a disaster. You know, how is this going to work for you? You know, you don't, you're not going to be able to plow, and what a problem. And he said, Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe this is a good thing, maybe this is a bad thing. I don't know. A few days later, his horse came back. And it brought with it a wild horse. That was a beautiful horse. Really good-looking horse. And put put them in the corral. And his neighbor said, Wow, that is great. Boy, did you luck out. He says, maybe yes, maybe no. So there, he and his son are out there breaking the horse, you know, making it rideable and usable. His fun, son finally starts to ride the horse, gets bucked off, breaks his leg. People go, oh my goodness, now you've lost, you know, the person that you need most to do your work, help you do the work of the farm, and maybe yes, 
maybe no. And then the the government, the rulers at the time, came through and they conscripted all the young, able-bodied men. They left him behind. He had a broken leg. They left the son behind. They didn't conscript him. People were like, oh, wow, that's great. Maybe yes, maybe no. And so the story continues without end. So this is the aspect of gain and loss. Have you ever noticed the... I'm not a big... um, Um, those popular magazine readers. Um, uh, It's not something that draws me in, but I get my fill when I'm in um, doctor's office waiting rooms and stuff. And recently I had an injury, so I was spending more time in doctor's offices. And I remember one particular day, it was a very slow day for me at the, at the doctor's. And I read a number, you know, sort of leafing through in the sort of, and I could just see these inc- incredibly famous people, right? That they're, the reason they're in the magazine is because they're famous, right? So on one hand, they are so famous that we all want to hear about them. And yet, it seemed like an awful lot of the information that was being offered about them was all this criticism about, well, criticism, all the gossip about their failings, their bad choices in partners, how they didn't do this right. I mean, their clothes, my goodness, you know. And... um, (laughs) And you could see, like, right there with the fame that made them in the magazine was this constant criticism of them. And have you noticed, you go out and you go for a walk. Even today would be a good example. You go out for the walk, and at first you're standing just out, just inside the door, and you go, oh, God, look, it's pretty sunny out. It looks great. Oh, this this is going to be a great walk. And you open the door, and you step out, and it's like this blast of cold air, and you go, oh, yuck, this was a bad idea. Okay, well, I said I was going to do this, so I'll keep going. And you walk a little bit, and then you see some sparkling sun on the snow, and you go, oh, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that nice? You walk a little more, and it's like the, it's all slippery, and you just about fall down, and you go, oh, this is hard. I don't like this. Then you see something else, and it's lovely, and then the freshness of the air starts to burn your cheeks and it feels cold, back and forth, back and forth, between the pleasant and the unpleasant. 
all in just a simple walk, right? Let alone day after day. So some of you have recognized by now that what I'm naming are, are the eight worldly vicissitudes, as they're called. These pairs of qualities that our life moves through, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasant and unpleasant, and the other one I named it, but I've forgotten it. It'll come back. Oh, uh, praise and blame. The Buddha said, just as a rock is not shaken by the storm, even so the wise are not affected by praise or blame. He was pointing to the fact that if we let ourselves be swayed by all this coming and going and up and down, that it is endless. It is endless. And it was interesting, at the, in the Buddha's time, he said, these, are, these eight worldly vicissitudes are going to continue without end. And I don't know the without end part, but it's 2,600 years later, and it, so far he's right. So they come and they go. And think about how much of your life is tied up in trying to get one of these without the other. How much do you try to gain? Always gain, but not lose any. Cultivating the pleasant experiences. You know, I mean, we're all, even in the moment, you know, you're sitting here meditating, right? And you're like, yeah, I'm doing this mindfulness. This is good for me. True confessions, underneath, you're really hoping this is going to be a pleasant experience, right? To heck with the growth, to heck with the, how, what the benefits of this are. What I really want is for this to be a pleasant experience. Of course. You know, we go, I think of all the um, pressure I put on myself to achieve things in my life. I mean, the... And I, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one. The number of uh, degrees and certifications and accomplishments that um, I thought I needed at that time, at that moment, that's what I needed. There's a story about a, uh, a samurai warrior, and he was walking along the road, and he was, he was thinking very seriously, very, feeling, very, uh, feeling very in himself, very powerful, and feeling quite like he was in a contemplative, considering the things of the world and trying to figure things out. <laughs> And he couldn't, he was like, okay, so what's the difference between this and that, and how does it work? And, and he came along a, uh, to a 
wizened old woman standing there. And he thought, well, I wouldn't usually ask, you know, somebody like that something, but she looks like she might be pretty wise. I'll ask her a question. And he asked her and he said, so what's the difference between heaven and hell? She said, she looked at him and said, why were you asking me that? You're, you don't, you're not smart enough to understand the answer even if I told you. <laughs> and besides, your robes are dirty and your sword, you're supposed to be a samurai warrior, right? And you're supposed to, and your sword's all rusty and he's getting, you know, he's starting to have a pretty major response to this and he's getting more and more angry and he's, and she said, oh, and you stink too. And he, at this point he pulls out his sword and he's like, how dare you talk to me like that? And she said, that's hell. <laughs> And he goes, oh, wow, I see that. That is hell, to be that in that place. Wow, this woman is wiser than I realized. She does have something. Wow, she must have the bravery of this woman to say this to me. Wow, she really took my answers, my questions seriously. She was really willing to risk my anger to teach me this. And he starts welling up with gratitude and appreciation. And she says, and that's heaven. So it doesn't take very much for us to experience these different heavens and these different hells. We go back and forth, back and forth. And a lot of it is being fed underneath the leaning into it by our own sense of insufficiency our own sense that if we can get it all right, if we can get enough of the pleasant, if we can get enough of the money, of the uh, acclaim, that somehow we're going to be okay. Right? I'm sure you, this isn't... You can feel that in yourself. And so this insufficiency comes up in us as craving. We want something out there to fill this emptiness, this feeling of insufficiency, of not enoughness, and we keep reaching for things. Maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. Now the Buddha was really, really clear that these things are not inherently a problem. So what I mean by that is like the pleasant. Having a, pleasant, having a nice tasting thing, a food that you really like and you eat it and you taste it and it's very pleasant. Nothing wrong with that. Beautiful day. Doing, working hard to accomplish something and feeling good about that effort. The Buddha even was very clear on the topic of money 
which is interesting because our so much of our culture is um, we end up flipping back and forth between like you know working for you know wanting money is I want it I want it and oh my god it's bad it's the poison you shouldn't want money okay so you know I have a I have a friend who grew up her family had money and she spent starting in her teen years for decades feeling bad about the fact that she'd grown up in a family that had money and there was a way the that played out in her constantly being poor and having a really hard time um, taking care of herself in a way that um, worked for her. The Buddha said money is fine. He said in fact there's three happinesses that come from money. The first one is just the mater- being able to take care of ours and our family's material well-being. That that's really a good thing to have. And there's other aspects he said about money that, you know, it's great to have money because then you can give it away and you can ta- offer it to others. But he said the really good thing about having money is that if you can take care of your material well-being and that of your family, then you have the opportunity to cultivate mental well-being. So the money isn't the end, but it is a means. We all know that it's hard if you don't have any money at all to have have a sense of safety and well-being as a lay person. And he also said that that was the second level of happiness. The third level of happiness was inner freedom. That we, and then, and I'll get to this later, at the level of inner freedom, if we've had the resources and the ability to cultivate ourselves to that point, then the money, whether we have it or not, actually starts to drop away. But we need it to get started. We need a certain amount. I shouldn't say we need, it is helpful. We don't actually need it. It is helpful for many of us, was the Buddhist point. So these, you know, having a good reputation in your community, a form of fame, not a problem. In fact, it could be an inspiration to other people. But the, problem, the issue comes up in this constant wanting more of it, not letting the way we don't let it come in and let it go out, the way we keep reaching and think that we should have only that. And as a result of that, we end up with all this internal judgment, self-criticism, all these ideas about what we should or shouldn't be. And that's the pain in these eight worldly vicissitudes, is this loop of not wanting and wanting, of thinking it should be other than it is, and thinking if we don't have the right for and we have some of the wrong for, that we're a failure. That we've done something wrong or we're bad. 
And the Buddha said, no, they're going to keep happening. They keep happening. It's great that the Buddha said it, but I think you could say it too. You, you've all lived long enough to watch it and see it happening. So he, the Buddha talked a lot about this quality of craving, this thirst. Thirst is the translation of the word tanha, which was what he used, the phrase he used. He took, he, the Buddha had a very interesting habit of taking words that were in use at the time and then giving them deeper, more uh, pithy meaning. So he took the word tanha, which means thirst, and that became the, the, that relentless thirst of wanting more. And you're from, you may be familiar with the, um, the three kinds of thirst that he mentioned. One was for sensual pleasures. So that plays into that first vicissitude of, of pleasant and unpleasant, that we want the pleasant. And the second one was the craving for being. And you might say for, uh, for being someone, something. You know, someone important. And that plays into that fame and disrepute, that wanting someone people, uh, someone that people praise. And that's not necessarily a physical thing. So a lot of times we can think we're more removed from the physical parts, but we still have that one. That one's a, a really deep-rooted in us. We want to be someone special. What we don't know, or have sometimes have a hard time remembering, is that we are someone special. We don't need to do something to become someone special. We already are. And then the third one is the craving for not being. That's that feeling when you walk in a room and you, you know, you open the door and you trip over your coat and then it turns out it's not even the right room and there's all these people and they all turn around and look at you and you, like, don't want to be there. You know that feeling? And sometimes, I mean, that's sort of an acute, simple version of it, but that feeling of... Uh, exhaustion. Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm worn out. And a lot of that comes, and the, the most extreme version of that is wanting not to be alive, right? That this often comes from those vicissitudes. You know, that feeling when I've just failed at this. I don't want to I don't want to face the world. You know, when, when you feel like you've been blamed for um, something and you take that in and you just feel so small. I'm, I'm going to ask, unless it's just a uh, question on something I said, if you have a question in general, will you hold on to it? Or if you just missed a word? Uh, yeah. You just missed a word? 
What was it? Go ahead. Oh, um, depression definitely has an element of that not wanting to be. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a lot of what's happening there, right? Yeah. So here's a thing, a poem from Kabir. I said to the wanting creature inside me, What is this river you want to cross? Do you believe there is some place that will make this soul less thirsty? In that great absence, in that great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Really pointing to this idea that there's somewhere else to go. So then the question always comes up, Well, if I don't desire anything, if I don't want to be different, if I don't, then what's going to get me out of bed in the morning? Why am I here? You know, okay, so I'm not supposed to desire anything. Does that mean I'm done? And the Buddha pointed to two different kinds of desire. Tanha, or thirst, and chanda which is the desire for well-being. And this is a different kind of desire. The desire for well-being. You might say also, if you're the desire for a pleasant that isn't of the sensual pleasures, it's what's often what the Buddha referred to as the otherworldly pleasant. The pleasant of um, generosity, of the Brahma Viharas, uh, the divine abodes of compassion and loving kindness and joy and equanimity. So he made the distinction between Lokita Sukha and Lokutra Sutta. Lokita Sukha, Sukha is the opposite of Dukkha. Okay, so we want sukha, right? This is a good thing. But he said, Lokita sukha is the temporary happiness, the passing happiness that comes and goes, that we often don't have much control over, and it can be quite fleeting. And it's still sukha, right? It's still pleasant. It still can be bring us incredible happiness. I mean, think about when you watch a sunset that's beautiful, It really is happiness, right? He said there's nothing wrong with that, but it's this passing happiness. And the other kind of happiness that he pointed to is Lakutra Sukha, which is the a deep place of refuge that is beyond all these changing circumstances. And as he put it, it's that you discover that it is the very nature of your mind 
that Lakutra Sukha is the nature of your mind when it is free of this desire. So in the Buddha's lifetime, it's, it's interesting to watch his trajectory. So he figured out that he could see these worldly vicissitudes. He was living, you know, in the family life, in the place with his, uh, his family apparently, maybe wasn't quite princely, but was well off, things were okay, he was doing fine. But he looked around and he could see, like there's all this pleasant stuff, but you know, this isn't actually that satisfying. I'm looking for something. I want some. I want more. So he went off looking. And one of the things that he came, the first experiences that he had was he, from the teachers of the day, he was taught um, concentration practice, watching the breath, getting very concentrated. And in that, he got an incredible amount of calm and ease. But what he noticed was even though this was a very sublime form of sukha, of the, the suffering had gone away, there was incredible happiness. But what he noticed was when he came out of those deep med- states of meditation and went back into the daily life, went to try to find some food and stuff, it was still kind of difficult. It was like the world still had its irritation and he still and he watched the people who had been doing this for a while and he saw that they didn't have a real inner freedom they were happy when they were meditating but the rest of the time there was some I mean it wasn't like they were um, suffering all the time but he saw it wasn't fully free it wasn't full satisfactory so he saw that that was still a conditioned happiness and he went off in search of something more. And there, the story goes that at that, as he was searching and thinking about this, one day he was walking, and he had the memory of sitting underneath a tree when he was a young boy, looking out over the fields at his father's and seeing the animals there. And at that time, he just fell into a place of deep contentment. Just okay. And he had the insight as he was walking that that contentment was more what he was looking for than some sort of deep altered state. And so when he went to sit under the Bodhi tree and um, pursue his enlightenment, that's what he was pointing towards, this deep contentment. And I wonder if you can think for yourself of times, or a time perhaps as a child or sometime in between, where you felt that contentment. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be taken away. 
for myself, I have a memory when I asked myself that question. I have no idea how old I was, but I was quite young. And I remember being on top of a, uh, a small hill in this field of flowers. And I um, was plopped down in the middle, and I, you know how you can um, do those braids with flower stems, and you just keep adding the flowers, and it can be as long as you want because you can just keep adding more. And I remember just sitting there and doing that for hours, completely content. There's a certain stillness in these moments of content. And and if you touch in on it, whatever yours is or is close, you know, you might not find the most profound, but in that it's quite, it's not usually not very complicated. There's a simplicity to it. And one thing that is key in there is that sense of insufficiency is gone. You have, in fact, the question probably doesn't make sense. There's a contentedness, an enoughness that is assumed. So here's a poem. It's from, um, there's a collection of poems of early Chan nuns. And this is a poem from one of them. The entire day I searched for spring, but spring I could not find. In my straw sandals I tromped among the mountain peak clouds, home again smiling, my finger a sprig of fragrant plum blossom. Spring was right here on these branches in all its glory. We look and we look, and it's right here. So simple. And as I talk about this, because of the example of the Buddha and the one that I offered, there can be a confusion that this enoughness or this contentment is somehow passive. But it doesn't have to be passive. It's, at, it's not about sitting still. It's about this relationship with ourselves and with the world. And you can have the relationship of enoughness while you walk around. In our culture, it's a little harder, right? As I pointed out yesterday, the culture is going to keep telling you that you need more of something. But that's That's out there. You can still have that feeling of enoughness. So I want to talk about this contentment a little in more detail. There is traditionally the role of monks and nuns, one of the aspects of their role in the Buddhist culture is to create the visible a model of contentment to see that that's possible. That's in the story of the four messengers, the four heavenly messengers. You may have heard that story, which, by the way, isn't actually 
in the Buddhist suttas. We, I'm not sure exactly where it arrived. But, this, but the messengers were that the, the story is that the Buddha went out and when he left the, his, um, his princely home, he went out on a drive and he saw a person that was sick. And he was like, wow, that's interesting. And I've never seen that before. And that, that is rather startling. And he saw a person that was aging. And he saw a person that was dead. And all of these were quite shocking to him. And the fourth heavenly messenger that he saw was of a mendicant, a renunciate, walking with having almost nothing and the peaceful expression on that person's face and the ease with which they traveled. So this is, even if it's not an original story, does point to the role that the monks and nuns played in the Buddhist culture. And this was a um, purposeful role in that the first set of instructions a monk or nun received after they were ordained was on the four contentments. Isn't that interesting? Their first instruction was the four contentments. And what are the four contentments? They are to be content with whatever robe So whatever clothes you have, or even if you have none. And it's very explicit that it's with whatever robe you have, whether it's a really nice one. If it's a really nice one, you don't need to go drag it through the puddles, and somehow you'll be holier if it's rags. Whatever robe you have, be content. If it's not such nice a one, little ratty, that's okay too. And even if you don't even have a robe, cultivate contentment. And the second one is around food. Be content. If you have served a fabulous meal, enjoy it. Take it in. Be content. Very poor meal or none at all, be content. And, you know, in this, it's very interesting. He doesn't say, ooh, if it's a really nice meal, you shouldn't have it. Bad idea. Just says, be content with that. Don't go looking for the same meal tomorrow, but accept it and receive it today. And the third one is about lodging. Be content with whatever lodging you are offered or none at all. And the fourth one is the contentment of letting go of the unwholesome and the unskillful. Contentment of letting go of the unwholesome and the unskillful. 
And this is not about deprivation. This is about joy. When you let go of the unwholesome, then there's ease. The unskillful, then you can be at rest. You can be happy. If you're content with the food you're offered, you can enjoy it. So he was not, this is the, that, um, this is why it's the middle way. It's not about deprivation, about anything being bad or wrong. It's about being joyful and content with whatever is here. And this is from the Bequeathed Teaching Sutra. He says, The method of knowing satisfaction is the locus of prosperity, of bliss, of peace and security. Even if you are lying on the ground, the people who know satisfaction are happy and at peace. For the people who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy, even if they are in heaven. The people who do not know satisfaction are poor, even if they are rich. The people who do know satisfaction are rich, even if they are poor. In this, can you feel how we have the opportunity to reclaim um, the, I mean, power would be a viol- the power in our lives. Reclaim what the, the way we live our lives, the way we respond. It's like, what are you... Um, Who and what are you going to allow to be the gatekeeper of your happiness? If you give it away, it's going to keep changing. If you are the gatekeeper of your happiness, ah, that you can take with you everywhere you go. This is quite radical. This is the heart of the teaching of the Buddha. That you can be free from your own heart. That you're not dependent on external conditions. This is the contentment of the spiritual life. And the Dalai Lama offering words of support and suggestion in this. If one cultivates simplicity, contentment comes. Simplicity is extremely important for happiness. Having few desires, feeling satisfied with what you have is very vital. Satisfaction with just enough food, clothing, and shelter to protect you from the elements And finally, there is intense delight in abandoning faulty states of mind and cultivating helpfulness. Do you see how he's giving the the exact instruction that the monks and nuns received?
So one of the things that we can get confused about in this quality of contentment, in our settling into contentment, is the idea that it's a state of mind, that it's a state that's going to come and stay. And I think it's actually very helpful to think of it instead as a practice. To realize that it's a practice, it's a moment-to-moment choice that you can make. You can choose that. So the vicissitudes of life come and go and rise and fall. And where as that's happening are you going to put your attention? How are you going to respond? Are you going to wait for it all to be right and then you'll be content? Well, you can see that just takes you right out of it. Or are you going to choose to find the contentment that's already here? And sometimes this, is a, this can be a real practice. You know, one of the lovely ways that um, Joseph Goldstein states this in your practice is, everything I need is already here. Can you see how that's cultivating the practice of contentment? And you can do that sitting right there on your cushion. When you start to hear your mind telling you, okay, let's see, let's, I need to get a little quieter. Oh, I wandered off. If you just go, it's okay. Everything I have is already here. You can do it standing in line at the store. I can choose contentment right in this moment. I can be in a hurry, or I can choose to be content. Looking at the colors of the candy bar wrappers, you know? It's a moment-to-moment choice. Another Chan Nun. I urge those of you who aspire to awaken. In aspiring to awaken, you must be diligent. If your mind is not completely sincere, you will wallow forever in the bitter sea. The great earth is vast and without limit, and sentient beings are too many to count. Yet how many people are there with the sense to leap out of the bitterness of samsara. Very grand. And it happens just moment by moment. Just this moment, just this moment. Nibbana, or nirvana, nibbana is the Pali word, nirvana is the Sanskrit word, can be described as the blowing out of the candle of craving via the practice of contentment. We think we're going to get to Nibbana somehow by working really hard. All the teachers will will point over and over to the fact that the road to Nibbana is the road of contentment right here. That's what that instruction is, right? That you hear in every tradition everywhere. It's right here. It's right here. 
be right here, content in this moment, present in this moment. So we are make this commitment again and again to our own sufficiency, to the sufficiency of the conditions, the enoughness. What I need is here. And I'll read you a last poem that you might say is the uh, the warrior song of contentment. It's from a monk, Patatera, who was from the time of the Buddha. When the thundering storm cloud roars out in the mist and a torrent of rain fills the paths of the birds, nestled in a mountain cave, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When along the rivers the tumbling flowers bloom in winding wreaths adorned with verdant color, seated on the bank, glad-minded, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When in the depths of night in a lonely forest the rain deva drivels and the fang beasts cry, nestled in a mountain cave, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. Devoid of fear, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When one is happy, expunged of grief, unobstructed, unencumbered, unassailed, having ended all defilements, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. So let's sit together. Right where you are is fine, but let's just sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.